I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. George Wallace guessed what was coming. On Saturday, March 6, 1965, the segregationist governor of Alabama declared that a planned march for voting rights from Selma to Montgomery on U.S. Highway 80 was illegal and authorized his state troopers to use whatever measures are necessary to prevent a march. be detrimental to your safety to continue this march and I'm saying that this is an unlawful assembly. You have to disperse. You are ordered to disperse, go home, or go to your church. This march will not continue. And so they would for a time. But in their violent attempt on a March Sunday to end a movement to make an American promise real, they would only fuel the fires of progress. Out of evil came good, out of darkness light, out of anguish justice. The day was called Bloody Sunday. I'm John Meacham, and this is Hope Through History, Episode 5. A battle for justice. There's going to be groups of people within the movement who want more than just demonstration. He was hoping for some kind of issue that would convert undecided Americans to the view that this is something that we have to do right now. Everyday ordinary people stood before the forces of the state, and the state literally bulldozed them. At the midpoint of the 1960s, the focus of the black freedom struggle had moved to voting rights. World War II had signaled the possibilities of a new era in race relations in a nation long defined by slavery and segregation. President Truman had desegregated the military and proposed a civil rights program that had divided the Democratic Party in 1948. The Brown School decision came in 1954 followed by the nonviolent student sit-ins of 1960, the Freedom Rides of 1961, the March on Washington in 1963, and the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. Five hours after the House passes the measure, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is signed at the White House by President Johnson. 
before an audience of legislators and civil rights leaders who have labored long and hard for passage of the bill, President Johnson calls for all Americans to back what he calls a turning point in history. I urge every American to join in this effort to bring justice and hope to all our people. A crucial figure in the movement from 1960 forward was the young great-grandson of a man born into enslavement, John Robert Lewis of Pike County, Alabama. Born in 1940 in the depths of the Jim Crow South, Lewis had overcome a childhood stutter by preaching to the chickens on his parents' small farm. As a student at American Baptist Theological Seminary in Nashville, Lewis had come under the influence of the Reverend James Lawson, a key architect of the nonviolent movement. Lewis had become chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, founded in Raleigh, North Carolina, under the leadership of Ella Baker. He had been the youngest speaker at the March on Washington, and now, in the late winter of 1965, John Lewis was headed to Selma. The seat of Dallas County, Alabama, Selma was a flashpoint for voting registration and access. The plan was to march from Selma to Montgomery. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Southern Christian Leadership Conference was deeply involved as well. Even Malcolm X, a figure in the North, took a distant role in the action at Selma. At one point, Malcolm telegraphed the American Nazi George Lincoln Rockwell, who was in Alabama taking a stand for white power. Malcolm wrote Rockwell that if the Nazis' present racist agitation against our people there in Alabama causes physical harm to Reverend King or any other black Americans who are only attempting to enjoy their rights as free human beings, you and your Ku Klux Klan friends will be met with maximum physical retaliation from those of us who are not handcuffed by the disarming philosophy of nonviolence and who believe in asserting our right of self-defense by any means necessary. Well, Malcolm's very, very respectful of the Southern movement, especially uh, the Black students who have sat in and who've been part of Freedom Rides. These are people like Ruby Doris Smith Robinson, John Lewis, Stokely Carmichael, so many others. This is Peniel Joseph, the founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy at the University of Texas at Austin. And so he's very, very respectful of these grassroots student activists who put their bodies on the line to try to transform American democracy in the South. He's still skeptical of democratic institutions and their ability to transform, but he finds deep inspiration in the fact that these students have belief and faith. And that's why by 64, Malcolm comes out on the side of voting rights publicly, really for the first time. Shortly before his February 1965 assassination in Harlem, Malcolm himself made a trip to Selma, unsubtly telling reporters, I think that the people in this part of the world would do well to listen to Dr. Martin Luther King and give him what he's asking for and give it to him fast before some other factions come along and try to do it another way. The backdrop to Selma is this. There are going to be black students 
who are deeply skeptical of the ability of democratic institutions and duly elected officials to expand American democracy at the pace of change that's going to be required to allow poor people to actually not only express their citizenship through the right to vote, but to secure political and economic power in the country. And so when we think about Selma in 1965, there's going to be groups of people within the movement who want more than just demonstration. But individual people like John Lewis and others are going to come down to Selma. In mid-February, former Mississippi Governor Ross Barnett attended the annual White Citizens Council membership dinner at the National Guard Armory in Dallas County. In his remarks, Governor Barnett called the resistance to arms. He said, The secret purpose of our enemies is to diffuse our blood, confuse our minds, and degrade our character, that we may not be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Four days later, an Alabama state trooper shot Jimmy Lee Jackson, a young veteran, in the stomach. Jackson had been trying to help his mother, who was being accosted by whites in a cafe in nearby Marion, Alabama, after they had left a voting rights meeting at Zion Methodist Church. The shooting came amid a night of beatings in the streets outside the church. Jimmy Lee Jackson died eight days later. John Lewis recalled, A lot of people had been beaten and hurt and jailed in the campaign at Selma, but no one had died until now. The day after Jackson's funeral, Dr. King said, We are going to bring a voting bill into being in the streets of Selma. President Johnson has a mandate from the American people. He must go out and get a voting bill this time that will end the necessity of getting any more voting bills. We're going to stand up right here in Alabama amid the billy clubs. We're going to stand up right here in Alabama amid police dogs if they have them. We're going to stand up amid tear gas. We're going to stand up amid anything that they can muster up, letting the world know that we are determined to be free. And then on Sunday, March 7th, a long line of marchers gathered at Brown Chapel AME Church. King was back in Atlanta for Sunday services at Ebenezer. Lewis and Hosea Williams led the column of demonstrators. Ambulances brought up the rear. Volunteer doctors and nurses had already set up a field medical unit next to the church. Ready to be arrested, Lewis carried two books, an apple and an orange, and a toothbrush and toothpaste in his backpack. calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking 
about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. One of the great lines of the Gettysburg Address is this line where he talks about so we shall have a new birth of freedom and the government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from the earth. The through line between Gettysburg and Selma is that by Selma, you have these new domestic fronts in that battle for freedom that Lincoln alludes to a century earlier. What's extraordinary is that in one historical context, Lincoln is alluding to soldiers who are fighting this bloody battle And in the next, you have really a new set of soldiers who are unarmed, who are nonviolent demonstrators, who are still engaged in that battle for citizenship, for dignity, for democracy, a century later to make sure that this experiment continues. No one in Lewis's column expected to make it to Montgomery. In the face of Wallace's order, however, they felt they had no choice but to proceed. Lewis recalled this. Like everyone around, I was basically playing it by ear. None of us had thought much further ahead than that afternoon. Anything that happened beyond that, if we were allowed to go on, if this march did indeed go all the way to Montgomery, we figured we would take care of as we went along. The main thing was that we do it, that we march. And they did. According to FBI reports of the day, marchers finished up a meeting at Brown Chapel at 2.18 p.m. Central Time. At that point, about 625 people, practically all of whom were Negroes, Assistant FBI Director Al Rosen wrote in an internal memorandum, silently walked from Sylvan Street to Water Avenue to the Edmund Pettus Bridge, named for a Confederate general who had served as a Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. At the crest of the bridge, John Lewis looked out and saw what he remembered as a sea of blue. State troopers and a posse of county deputies were lined across Highway 80. White spectators, some waving Confederate battle flags, watched from outside the Glasshouse Restaurant, the Chicken Treat Drive-In, the KO Gas Station, and Lehman's Pontiac Dealership. Reporters and cameramen stood ready. Lewis and Williams looked at the armed ranks and then glanced down at the river. John, can you swim? Williams asked. No, Lewis replied. What about you? A little, Williams said. Well, there's a lot of water down there, Lewis replied. We cannot jump. We're going to have to keep marching. detrimental to your safety to continue this march, and I'm saying that this is an unlawful assembly. You have to disperse. You are ordered to disperse. Go home or go to your church. This march will not continue. Is that clear to you? I've got nothing further to say to you. Williams asked if they might have a word with Major Cloud. 
There is no word to be had, Cloud replied. The two then repeated the exchange to the same effect, which was none. And so the two cores of Americans stood, staring in the middling hours of afternoon. History isn't always like this. In fact, it's rarely like this. We impose order on the disorder of the past, weaving together multiple strands, disparate events, muddled motives, what William James called reality's blooming, buzzing confusion. With Selma, however, the narrative need not be neatened. The facts speak for themselves. Facing Major Cloud, Lewis drew on the lessons learned under Jim Lawson on those now distant Nashville Tuesday evenings at Clark Memorial Church, where he had learned nonviolence. I wasn't about to turn around, Lewis recalled. We were there. We were not going to run. We could have gone forward, marching right into the teeth of those troopers. But that would have been too aggressive, I thought, too provocative. God knew what might have happened if we had done that. These people were ready to be arrested, but I didn't want anyone to get hurt. The wind riffling his tan trench coat, Lewis pondered what to do. We couldn't go forward, he recalled. We couldn't go back. There was only one option left that I could see. He would not fight, not with a weapon of this world, but with the weapon of the world he was seeking to bring into being. We should kneel and pray, Lewis said to a nodding Williams. They wouldn't have time. Two minutes had passed since Cloud had issued his final warning. Lewis recalled, You saw these men putting on their gas masks. Now he heard Cloud's voice pierce the air. Troopers, the Major cried, Advance! Within seconds, to Lewis it seemed instantaneous, the wave of blue struck. He remembered the enormity, the totality of the reaction of his attackers. The troopers and possemen swept forward as one like a human wave, a blur of blue shirts and billy clubs and bullwhips, Lewis recalled. We had no chance to turn and retreat. The pain was to be endured. There was no help for it. They came toward us and Hosea said, John, they're going to gas us. They came with all types of force, beating us with nightsticks, trampling us with horses. I was the first person to be hit. My feet, my legs went out from under me. I was knocked down. Charles Malden, a 17-year-old who was in the third row of the column, heard the blow. I'll never forget the sound of the billy club hitting John's head, Malden recalled. It made this sickening, harsh thwack. The first canister of tear gas had little effect on the column. The troopers then ignited 20 more, which had a great deal of effect. An FBI agent clinically remarked, this quantity of tear gas immediately dispersed the marchers. Trapped between the asphalt and his uniformed attackers, inhaling tear gas and reeling from billy club blows to his head, Lewis felt everything dimming. 
He vomited from the gas and was struck again when he tried to get up. He could hear screams and slurs and the clop, clop, clop of the trooper's horses. His skull fractured, his vision blurred. Lewis believed the end had come. He said to himself, People are going to die here. I'm going to die here. Yet for Lewis, there was no sense of panic, no gasping, no thrashing, no fear. He was at peace. At the moment when I was hit on the bridge and began to fall, Lewis recalled, I really thought it was my last protest, my last march. I thought I saw death. And I thought, it's okay. It's all right. I am doing what I am supposed to do. It was war. From observation, FBI Special Agent Joseph M. Conley reported, it appeared the nightsticks were used by most of the troopers and posse as a matter of first recourse, and in general were used indiscriminately. There had been no waiting for any signs of resistance before attacking another agent, Daniel D. Doyle wrote. Both women and men, Doyle added, were struck with nightsticks. One girl, about 14, ran across the highway. An FBI agent noted, a posse member saw the girl and gave chase on his horse and swung at the fleeing marcher several times with his nightstick. A group of at least six whites who weren't part of the law enforcement corps attacked and repeatedly struck individual Negroes who had become separated from the crowd. A black man was forced to the ground and assaulted with a rubber-covered cable with a metal clamp attached to one end. To Charles Malden, who was choking on tear gas, there could be only one explanation. They were trying to provoke us, I think, into doing something violent, into hitting back. But we didn't. Lewis struggled back to consciousness. I was bleeding badly, he recalled. My head was now exploding with pain. That brief, sweet sense of just wanting to lie there was gone. I needed to get up. I'd faded out for I don't know how long but now I was tuned back in. His journey back to Brown Chapel was a blur. Parts of the posse gave chase. One deputy had manufactured a cudgel by putting barbed wire around a rubber hose. Others had whips. Mounted posse rode up the steps of the church. Charles Malden worried they might ride into the sanctuary itself. Seeking safety, the fleeing marchers filled the church, which was, Lewis recalled, awash with sounds of groaning, weeping, and singing and crying. Mothers shouting for their children, children screaming for their mothers and brothers and sisters. At an impromptu mass meeting in the chaotic sanctuary, Lewis, bloodied and dirty, with a fractured skull and what one SNCC worker described as a small hole in his head, told the frightened congregation, I don't understand how President Johnson can send troops to Vietnam and cannot send troops to Selma, Alabama to protect citizens who want to register to vote in America. He was seeing double as he spoke. The pain was enveloping. When he arrived at Good Samaritan, Lewis was struck by the ambient scent of tear gas from the clothes of the victims. 48 marchers were treated at the hospital that day, Thirteen of them, including Lewis, were admitted. Another eight were treated at the local Burwell Infirmary, most for the effects of the tear gas. Dr. Isabel Dumont diagnosed Lewis with a severe concussion and a fractured skull. 
He was attended to, given painkillers, and put to bed in the hospital. He was asleep by 10 p.m. Lewis drifted off as images of the Alabama attack ran that evening on national television. This Alabama town will go down in the history books as a turning point in the civil rights drive. From the halls of Congress to the smallest crossroads hamlet, people can understand the plea that no American can have freedom and justice unless there is freedom and justice for all. In Selma, there is a lesson to be learned. It's this heroic moment when everyday ordinary people, led by some extraordinary folk like Emil Boynton and John Lewis and others, stood before the forces of the state. And the state literally bulldozed them. This is Eddie Gloud, Jr., the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor of African American Studies at Princeton. I mean, it's an extraordinary act of state violence directed against black folk who are standing in their constitutional rights, making a constitutional argument for their full-fledged citizens. From the White House down, the broader world was reacting to the circumstances that Lewis had helped create at the Pettus Bridge. Lyndon lives in a cloud of troubles with few rays of light, Lady Bird Johnson told her diary on Sunday night. Now it is the Selma situation, and the cauldron is boiling. Selma sprang overnight from an obscure southern town to the front pages of world newspapers. The president referred to the events in Selma as an American tragedy. Johnson wanted voting rights, but he knew that politically it would be very hard for him to do that without an incident that influenced Americans who were on the fence about doing something about voting rights or not. And that came from his life experience. This is the historian and author, Michael Beschloss. LBJ knew that Roosevelt could not have gotten involved in World War II as he did in the absence of Pearl Harbor, but Pearl Harbor happened. He knew that Kennedy would have had a hard time sending the Civil Rights Bill to Congress in 1963, except for the violence that people saw in Birmingham with the barking dogs and the police behavior that caused Americans to say, there's a real problem here, maybe we should have a Civil Rights Bill. So I would never suggest that LBJ in any way wanted to see anything like Bloody Sunday, but you can bet that he was hoping for some kind of issue that would convert undecided Americans to the view that this is something that we have to do right now. Fred Gray, Martin Luther King's lawyer from Montgomery, was asked to come over to Selma to file a lawsuit for a resumption of the march calling for an influx of clergy of all faiths to join the protesters and testify to the fact that the struggle in Selma is for the survival of democracy everywhere in our land, King himself arrived in Selma on Monday, March 8th, to comply with a federal order that had temporarily halted the march on Highway 80. King led a partial march to the bridge. A hearing later that week before Judge Frank M. Johnson lifted the injunction against the marchers. The events in Selma had been brought to a climax by a nighttime attack on a white Boston minister by white men. He died two days later. Many feeling he suffered martyrdom in the cause of civil rights and voting discrimination. 
A white Unitarian minister, James Reeb, was beaten to death outside a Klan hangout, the Silver Moon Cafe. Meanwhile, cries for a voting rights bill increased, and President Johnson found himself trying to manage the calls for legislation, the plans for a renewed march from Selma to Montgomery, and George Wallace. If I just send in federal troops with their big black boots, it will look like Reconstruction all over again, Johnson remarked privately. I will lose every moderate, not just in Alabama, but all over the South. Most Southern people don't like this violence. They know deep in their hearts that things are going to change, but not if it looks like the Civil War all over again. George Wallace came to the White House on Saturday, March 13, 1965. The president seated the governor on a couch in the Oval Office and then positioned himself in a taller rocking chair. As Johnson recalled, I saw a nervous, aggressive man, a rough, shrewd politician, who had managed to touch the deepest chords of pride as well as prejudice among his people. Why don't you just desegregate all your schools, Johnson asked. You and I go out there in front of those television cameras right now, and you announce you've decided to desegregate every school in Alabama. Oh, Mr. President, I can't do that, Wallace said. You know, the schools have got school boards. They're locally run. I haven't got the political power to do that. Don't you shit me, George Wallace, Johnson said. Later in the meeting, the president pressed a larger question. George, why are you doing this? You came into office a liberal. You spent all your life trying to do things for the poor. Now, why are you working on this? Why are you off on this Negro thing? You ought to be down there calling for help for Aunt Susie in the nursing home. Johnson continued, Now listen, George, don't think about 1968. Think about 1988. You and me, will be dead and gone then, George. What do you want left after you when you die? Do you want a great big marble monument that reads, George Wallace, he built? Or do you want a little scrawny pine board lying across that hard soil that reads, George Wallace, he hated? Under pressure, the governor ultimately consented to ask for federal help to maintain order when the march resumed. Hell, if I'd stayed in there much longer, Wallace remarked, he'd have had me coming out for civil rights. Johnson wanted to be the one who would decide when voting rights went to Congress, what the bill would look like, and when it would pass if it did. And for that reason, he had to feel as if he was in control of Dr. King and John Lewis and the forces in the streets and American public opinion and people in Congress. And so what you see is a president who, in the wake of Bloody Sunday, doesn't just say, I'm going to Congress tomorrow to give my speech. He very carefully prepares the way so that the speech will have maximum impact. And part of that preparation was making sure with some help that he wrote a speech and delivered it as one of the great state documents in American history, which that speech was. The White House speechwriter Richard Goodwin drafted LBJ's address to Congress on voting rights for Monday, March 15th. On that evening, the president stood in the chamber of the House of Representatives. I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. I urge every member of both parties, Americans of all religions and of all colors, from every section of this country, to join me in that cause. 
At times, history and fate meet at a single time, in a single place, to shape a turning point in man's unending search for freedom. So it was at Lexington and Concord. So it was a century ago at Appomattox. So it was last week in Selma, Alabama. In our time, we have come to live with the moments of great crisis. Our lives have been marked with debate about great issues, issues of war and peace, issues of prosperity and depression. But rarely in any time does an issue lay bare the secret heart of America itself. Rarely are we met with a challenge, not to our growth, our abundance, or our welfare, or our security, but rather to the values and the purposes and the meaning of our beloved nation. The issue of equal rights for American Negroes is such an issue. And should we defeat every enemy, and should we double our wealth and conquer the stars and still be unequal to this issue, then we will have failed as a people and as a nation. For with a country as with a person, what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. The evocation of Scripture, Johnson was quoting the words of Jesus from the Gospel of St. Mark, resonated, and the lawmakers applauded for the first time since the president had begun to speak. Johnson went on, Many of the issues of civil rights are very complex and most difficult. But about this, there can and should be no argument. Every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. <laughs> Yet the harsh fact is that in many places in this country, men and women are kept from voting simply because they are Negroes. Every device of which human ingenuity is capable has been used to deny this right. The Negro citizen may go to register only to be told that the day is wrong, or the hour is late, or the official in charge is absent. And if he persists, and if he manages to present himself to the registrar, he may be disqualified because he did not spell out his middle name or because he abbreviated a word on the application. What happened in Selma is part of a far larger movement which reaches into every section and state of America. It is the effort of American Negroes to secure for themselves the full blessings of American life. 
Their cause must be our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. Lewis and King watched the address together in the home of Dr. Sullivan Jackson, a Selma dentist. Lewis recalled, I looked at Dr. King and tears came down his face, and we all cried a little. King called Johnson afterward. It is ironic, Mr. President, that after a century a southern white president would help lead the way toward the salvation of the Negro. Thank you, Reverend. You're the leader who is making it all possible, Johnson said. I'm just following along, trying to do what's right. It's difficult to overstate Selma's significance. It was true, as President Johnson told the Congress and the nation, that the small southern city had joined Lexington and Concord and Appomattox as a sacred place where the nation's story had taken a decisive turn. But what sets Bloody Sunday apart is that Selma became Selma not because of a conventional clash of forces, but because the conventions of history were being turned upside down. Lexington and Concord featured armed combatants. Appomattox is shorthand for the end of a civil war that claimed three quarters of a million lives. Selma changed hearts and minds when Americans watched the brutal forces of the visible world meet the forces of an invisible one and the clubs and horses and tear gas were, in the end, no match for love and grace and nonviolence. Change in America most often comes when the powerless attract the attention of the powerful. From a pragmatic perspective, that process is perennial with fits and starts, advances and retreats, good days and bleak ones. In such a view, and it was one shared by many of the American founders, History is contingent, a succession of compromises and improvisations world without end. To John Lewis, though, history was terminal, and it will end not in despair and dust, but in hope and harmony, with the coming of what he and Dr. King called the beloved community. To Lewis, then, politics was a means, not an end an arena in which to bring about a world in which, in the words of the prophet Micah, every man would dwell under his own vine and fig tree, and none should make him afraid. When the Voting Rights Act passed in the summer, LBJ told Lewis, I'm going to sign this act. Now, John, you've got to go back and get all those folks registered. You've got to go back and get those boys by the balls. Just like a bull gets on top of a cow, you've got to get them by the balls and you've got to squeeze, squeeze them till they hurt. I'd heard Lyndon Johnson enjoyed talking in graphic down-home terms, Lewis recalled, but I wasn't quite prepared for all those bulls and balls. The president, in Lewis's dry recollection, was plain and open. In March 2020, as he was dying from pancreatic cancer, John Lewis returned to the Pettus Bridge once more. Standing amid a crowd of congressmen and senators, he reflected on the journey. 
It is good to be in Selma, Alabama one more time, he said to the crowd, pausing between phrases, letting the words sink in. On this bridge just a few short years ago, a few of the children of God started on a journey. Lewis mused to his fellow pilgrims about what had come to pass and what still lay ahead. We took a little walk to try to dramatize the need for the rights of all our people to be able to participate in the democratic process, he said. In an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion, we were walking, not saying a word. We were beaten, tear-gassed, bull-whipped. On this bridge, some of us gave a little blood to help redeem the soul of America. Our country is a better country. We are a better people but we still have a distance to travel, to go, before we get there. I want to thank each and every one of you for being here. And with this, his voice rose almost to a shout, which in the Bible was a sign of God's intervention in human affairs. For not giving up, for not giving in, for keeping the faith, for keeping your eyes on the prize. You're wonderful, you're beautiful. All of you look so good. A voice from the crowd called out, We love you, John. I love you too, he said. We have a lot of work to do, Lewis said. So don't get weary. Keep the faith. Thank you for listening to Season 2 of Hope Through History, a documentary podcast presentation from C-13 Originals in association with the History Channel. Executive produced by me, John Meacham, and Chris Corcoran. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Edited, produced, mixed, and mastered by Chris Basil. Produced and production engineering and research support by Paige Heimson, Ian Mont, Bill Schultz, Bob Tabador, and Sean Sherry. Creative consultation by Eli Lehrer and Jesse Katz. Graphic design, marketing, and publicity by Brian Swarth. Hilary Schuff, Josephina Francis, and Kurt Courtney. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.